Hello and welcome to the Beyond Business Podcast. My name's Charles Mackay. Today we interviewed Matthew Hurl from Brand Crush. Matt will get all into what Brand Crush does throughout this episode. Matthew is a career sales guy. He's come through the ranks um, and worked in pretty much, I can nearly, nearly bet you that if you've been a small business or a small to medium business that he has run and tried to sell you something in media, advertising, banner ads, um, all sorts of things around, you know, as that media landscape has, has evolved. Um, but he started his career um, literally outbound cold calling to regional Victoria, regional New South Wales. And that was where he got the love for sales. And he progressed his career um, literally all around the world selling um, you know, from roadie reps to retail to all sorts of things. Um, he's had a fascinating career and is now at that journey of starting his own business at Brand Crush. Um, and he's on that you know, journey of understanding what it means to be a business owner and how to really build it for scale and build it for the long term. Um, it's a really interesting conversation with Matt. Um, I'm really looking forward to handing it over. So without further ado, let's get into it. Matt Hurl, happy Friday. Welcome to the Beyond Business podcast. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. No worries at all. Tell me, um, tell me whereabouts in this world, in this current environment, are you sitting and where would you normally be sitting? And yeah, give us an update. So a normal Friday would probably be uh, at our office in South Melbourne, um, with our team around us and leading into Friday drinks. Right now, uh, dialing in from my kitchen table in Torquay, uh, down the surf coast. Family's in the background. It's chaotic, very hard to focus, but uh, makes it fun and kind of exciting as well. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, Matt, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, let's, uh, let's rewind a few gears and go back to... Um, first, introduce yourself. So, um, you know, Matt's the co-founder and um, of a, a business called Brand Crush, um, and has probably built his career through sales. And I'll let him more tell that story. But where where did everything start off from you for you, Maddie? Where did it all begin? I would say that my my drive for sales is definitely what has shaped my career. But funnily enough, it started at Subway right? I was a sandwich artist and I'm proud of it. It was my first job uh, in Ballarat and I would like make it my mission to basically upsell everyone that came through ordering a sub into honey mustard mayonnaise. It didn't, it didn't matter if you're getting lobsters, if you're getting meatballs, if you're getting a BLT, even if you were getting like your breakfast bagel um, at Subway, I would, I would, pest you and pers- like persist until you had honey mustard mayonnaise on that sucker um and I, I got a kick out of it i got a kick out of shaping the decisions that people um you know people make you know i didn't realize it at the time but I, only about four percent of the population can make a decision on their own and so um it's actually pretty easy to shape how people think but that's an interesting power superpower that you've actually got to learn to control and it's 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 not always right to to shape what people think either because they need to own the outcome of their decision yes i can i can totally imagine that how how long were you flipping subs for uh i don't know i think about eight eight or nine months um and, uh, and then it was off to uni but um like that was such an awesome 
phase of life. It was when, you know, you first had got your, your driver's license for me living remotely um, 20 or 30 minutes out of a, a small country town. Um, that sense of freedom and, and like it was just an awesome period and, and I always look back on that um, fondly. I never yeah. look back and think about the mundane stuff of having to like literally make people's sandwiches and <laughs> yeah. I think back and I remember the, the relationships that I formed with either teammates or I remember the feeling of driving to and from work, even just that feeling of empowerment knowing I was able to start generating my own income and, and that mm. independence mm. um and then and then yeah i do remember some clients that would come through and order their food and i definitely remember plenty of my friends that would come through and i'd give them ripping deals that were not necessarily all <laughs> above board uh, on their their meals <laughs> i like it i like it so then um you moved into um obviously university but i actually wouldn't mind going a little bit further back because you've said you've found a passion for selling flipping sandwiches. <laughs> um, mm. How did you make, and you said that, you know, what is it? Only 4% of the population can actually yep. make a decision. So how did you end up studying whatever you're studying? But what was, did you do that for the sake of it? Or yep. what, what was the Definitely. driver for that? So <laughs> yeah. in, terms of, in terms of university, um, for me, that was um, a time in my life to to grow up. I went to a school where it was, it was, implicit that that was a like a positive outcome um yeah and and that was kind of an under undercurrent through the school i mean there, there, it was a really great school for ag and other things but definitely there was an undercurrent that going to tertiary education was like the the the, the outcome that the school wanted to see no yeah. one when i went into it told me that you would come out of that period in life with a 24 or thirty thousand dollar debt no one explained yeah that it might take me you know another eight years to pay that off um and if someone at that time had said oh would you prefer to go to uni or would you prefer like a thirty thousand dollar deposit to put into property like i look back for me <laughs> i'd take the property or the deposit every day of the week but yeah. that's not right for everyone what university no. gives to me was um you know three years of my life that i um, got to to grow up a little bit or, or had time to kind of grow up and I needed that I still need that now like the more time I can get to grow up the better and university yeah. was a great middle ground between you know totally being pampered at, at home life I was um, an indulged child I'm not going to sort of deny that and university was like the first step to independence and you know learning how to live on um, $50 a week, which, you know, in my mind then correlated to a bottle of vodka and, and, and then like maybe 10 carrots and that awesome, <laughs> awesome two-minute noodles. But, awesome uh, but sausages. It, awesome sausages, but it did help shape some of that early independence. Um, mm. Again, that, that period of my life was definitely very, like very powerful for shaping um, relationships that still stick with me today. I think about two of the relationships and friendships that I've got in my life now. Um, and they're two people that I went to university with. I was lucky to go to university in an alpine resort. Um, and the reason I ended up going to university was basically to live in an alpine resort because my mm. passion was kind of the outdoors and the Alps and, and skiing at the time. Mm. Um, I did the only university degree that you could do at that uni, um, <laughs> and that was a Bachelor of Business. Um, it really focused in tourism and hospitality. Uh, towards the end of the, the degree when I was sort of starting to understand a little bit 
more about what I, my interests were and my passions were. I mm. shaped that those studies more towards marketing and um, and like the the marketing principles. But mm. weirdly, there's no there is no university for sales. So, but if no. I if I had a had a sales subject at university, then I probably would have clued on even earlier to what mm. what interested me. Um, mm. So I, I got involved in like more official selling in a um, like through a couple of different. I was exposed to it in my early career through a couple of different ways. Um, I think very early on, I, I met someone who was dating my housemate, and she was working for uh, a company that basically sold um, advertising within uh, kids' smart handbooks to promote community-safe messages, educating kids about cyberbullying, and and um, essentially it was advertising. And that job was commission-only income, right? So if I didn't sell anything, I didn't earn anything. And whilst I, at the time, I had very low overheads, um, I was unbelievably motivated by the fact that I could earn three times as much as my friends um, and doing the same or less hours if I was good at it. And so the, mm. there was all of a sudden this disconnect between, like when I was in hospitality, for example, during studies. Yeah, you do your yeah, eight-hour shift or whatever it was. Yeah, your income was aligned and controlled by the hours you put in. And then uh, mm. what I like my first exposure to sales was you could break that that connection and you could align your income with your results as opposed to your hours and um you know being i don't know naturally i like to optimize things and and maximize everything and so if i could get more of my personal time back and still get the same or more income um like that was a great trade-off so that was a really interesting um experience then traveled you know overseas canada and whatnot and and having some of that sales, early sales um, experience actually, you know, helped me gain employment. It, mm. it helps you understand what, how. What, what sort of, um, like to phrase it to what sort of selling you were doing now, I mean, to, to, today, like what, yeah, what yeah, were yeah. you doing? Like tell us about like what, yeah. how so are this, you getting lists? This, like how are yeah, you calling so this, people? This selling was 100% outbound. Um, it yeah. was sophisticated in that we would use a program that provided lists for us um if the lists were no good you could always flip open the phone book uh, back in the day that was also acceptable but these yeah. leads were not qualified the um the person at the other end of the phone didn't know i was about to call them we didn't know who they were we didn't know you know we would have regions that we we're allowed to call into so i was calling into yeah. orange orange is out the back of uh new south wales or sydney yeah at the time I called Orange, I'd never been to Orange. I knew nothing about Orange. I just pictured oranges, to be honest, <laughs> right? So I'm calling, the, I'm calling the fish and chip shop. I'm, you know, I'm calling the dentist. I'm calling the, uh, you know, the local um, motor mechanic. I, I'm asking all of these people to support the kids in their community, keep their kids safe, um, and positioning it and phrasing it in a way that make it, made it very um, grassroots. But realistically... That money was just going from them um, and 95% of it was going to the publisher uh, of the deal, you know, depending on if I'd got the, the deal signed off on a fax or if I'd got the deal signed off uh, via a, a, an audio recording. 
I would mm-hmm. make somewhere between 20 and 40% commission on that deal. And so we, we would be selling this advertising anywhere between like 300 bucks for an advert up to nine or 10 grand for a full page. Um, mm-hmm. And so for a, you know, a 20 something year old to, to be making 50% on that, it was awesome. Like it was, it was, um, yeah, it was exciting. So come back to your question, like the selling was just brute forced. It was persistent. It was like you would, it was like you would dial and you would, you would try and not put the phone down in between dialing because that was a waste of time. You would try to hit a hundred outbound phone calls per day. And out of that, if you got two or three conversions to someone actually buying from you, that was an unbelievable day, right? So you're spending probably eight hours, eight hours reaching out to unqualified people to Mm. get three deals across, across the line. Now, you know, back then we didn't have some of the things that, you know, sophisticated nurturing stuff that we have today. We can go into that, but um, it was just brute force. It was, and I was like a dumb tool in that whole chain. Cog. Yeah. Cog. Yeah. Um, but at the time I didn't know any better and, and there's kids still coming through the ranks today that don't know any better. And, and if they can still make a, you know, a chunk of change um, along the way and, and learn some things, you, what you do learn and sort of, I took that experience and mm. ended up doing a slightly more sophisticated version of that in, in radio advertising mm. sales and mm. in, in direct radio advertising sales, you still need to prospect. So you need to, you need to be looking at the newspaper, looking at billboards, listening to other radio stations, um, looking at who's advertising online, looking at all the other places that people advertise and you need to be writing down notes of who's spending money to get their brand or, or message out there. Um, you then need to sort of overlay that that with who else in your team's already potentially speaking to them and you need to be mm-hmm. first to the punch so that you could potentially win that business for your, uh, for your brand or whoever you're representing. Um, but then even in that business, we had to do a chunk of outbound and we'd call it like two hours of power, but we'd do that like six hours a week, right? (laughs) Ideally four hours a week, um, but really six hours a week. The only reason you wouldn't have to do as much outbound, um, sort of outreach is because the deals were traditionally a little bit bigger. So instead of selling, you know, a $300 deal, you might sell a, a $30,000 campaign or, or mm. a $40,000 campaign. Um, and, and so the, what the, that process sort of taught me was the, the f- sophistication you could have in, in prospecting uh, and then the, the, the sales strategy around, um, you know, obviously booking the meeting, coming into the meeting, setting an agenda, which is something that I thought was way too professional but a really interesting way to frame up what you're going to ask them for in terms of information. Um, yeah. And then doing the discovery and actually quantifying, um, quantifying basically what their pain points are. So you know, if, you, if let's say you're going into a car dealership and they've got a hundred cars sitting in the car dealership, and that car dealership has been receiving free finance from the manufacturer for the last five months, but mm. it's coming to the sixth or seventh month of them holding the cars in their lot, and after that six months, they have to start paying five or ten percent or whatever percentage on each of those vehicles it also it all of a sudden starts costing them thousands of dollars to have that inventory sitting 
in their in their parking lots. And so if they can spend $30,000, right, to break even and just sell those cars and move them on and bring in new cars that are on free finance, that's yeah. a good result for them. So qualifying, um, quantifying basically their pain points to understand what a, an okay, good and, and exceptional result would be if they're looking for an ROI or if they're looking for a break even. Um, and, and so that was that was a really interesting learning curve um, to go through and the direct radio sort of experience was an unbelievable asset to my my you know furthering my my sales education because it it really taught me to be disciplined and and have that structure structuring your week and then structuring Mm. how you go back and and sell in a solution to a client um how you close them and then ideally how you retain and grow them as well which Again, that's changed a fair bit. That landscape's changed a fair bit as well. Yeah. What would you say, you know, through to, to sort of the last couple of years especially, but through that 15 or so years that you've been selling, mm. what, what do you think hasn't changed? And then what do you think has dramatically changed in the way you have to sell? Yeah, really good question. So the things that I think haven't changed and will never change around selling or being any sort of business development or revenue generation part of a company is the persistence that is required to do that. In that role, naturally, you get more no's than you do yes's. If you were getting more yes's, you'd be be killing it and and you don't need to listen to me right now. Um, Switch off and go back to the beach. But if you if you are like 99.9% of sales or business, biz development people in, in the world, you are stacked up with way more no's and yes's. And so having the persistence and the resilience to actually push, push past that, re-energize yourself personally, um, and it is a personal thing, how you manage your energy totally. flows, yeah. that is something that will never change. Um, the, the other thing that I, I think is, Part and parcel with that, and, and and a part of re-energizing yourself is managing your energy levels through almost through creativity. A lot of the time, you do need to be creative with how you're selling and how you're proposing a solution to a client, and that creativity um, is is something that will energize you naturally. So persistence, creativity, and resilience are probably the things in any BD role that will never change in terms of how you sell and what's evolving very quickly and has, has changed dramatically throughout my career is, is um, who you try and sell to and what information you know about them before you try and sell to them. And if you're not leveraging technology to um, pre-qualify uh, those prospects that you're going to sell to um, or keep selling to, then you're absolutely crazy because the technology today allows you to totally screen um, who, who, you know, who's interested in you um, or, uh, or to- even totally screen, you know, who you should be selling to based on what else they're doing, um, where else they're going, where else they're um, potentially spending their dollars. There's a lot more analytics available today um, because of the data that's involved with most modern-day transactions. Um, there's a lot more sources of data that we can use to build business cases as to why, you know, valid yeah. business. How, how do you think the, you know, the 20, 21, 22-year-old 
Matt would have gone with that information now as opposed to just here's a list of people, call them and deal with the nodes? Do you think you could have handled it? Or like- no, I don't, to be honest. I mean, I'm in a role now where I have to be so much more sophisticated um, mm. every day. I have to be way more analytical. I have to look at mm. so much more data. And to be honest, I kind of wish that I lived back in the in the suits <laughs> days where it was just cowboys selling media because those guys yeah. made a killing because effectively yeah. they were they were selling a lot of the time like average solutions to people that didn't know any better in a market that was way less fragmented and and yeah. there was well, like, that's that's the been the monumental shift though where now buyers have got so much more education and information like the reality is the seller doesn't even have as much as the buyer anymore so exactly. it's flipped that that's what's happened massively you look at someone today going to buy a car they probably like I actually saw this experience the other day. Uh, my mother-in-law is looking to buy a car. The dealer had someone drive a car out to their house to drop it off to do a test drive, which, A, that's, that whole experience is totally new in, in car sales. But then she's pointing out the fact that you could type in a, a code into the back bumper bar and that allows you to open the bumper um, without the keys because the keys could stay in the car because with that particular car you could go surfing and leave the keys in the car. And the dealer was like, the the representative of the dealership was like, oh, I didn't even know that. So she knew that because she jumped on blogs, she'd done her research, and all of a sudden she's down the funnel, she's looking at the actual car, but way more educated because she's way more, you know, interested in learning product knowledge for what she's about to purchase. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's just how you then have the empathy as a, you know, person on the other end of the line to just navigate them through the journey. Um, Yeah, totally. With with the you know those shifts, what challenges have you seen, and where people have failed and people have succeeded as things have evolved? Um, you know, we've all seen it where people are stuck in their ways and just won't change. But you know, if it is it, you know, the same behaviours yeah. in a nutshell that's worked. Or like, where have you seen it work and not work? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, what you see a lot in selling is you see the lazy salespeople want to get deals across the line by discounting, mm. right? And so as soon as you start discounting, you're reducing yield or margin, whatever, however you want to look at it, you're, you're reducing that individual's belief in what they're selling, um, you're um, affecting the whole value of whatever the asset is, whether it's media or something else that the company owns mm-hmm. um and then like the, you're also like devaluing your time um yeah. and then and then you're saying to a client hey buy this it was that but now it's this like <laughs> why why is it cheaper and why was it originally that price was it really ever valued at that price yeah. like uh, i see people selling today like uh, especially in media sales and it cracks me up right but, but Australia in particular has a massive sale-centric buying community across retail yep. and across 100%, business, to be honest. 100%, and it's yeah. disgusting because, like, the real price that something's worth is whatever someone's prepared to pay for it. Yep. And so, like, back it. Like, charge that. And no, make like, totally. clients that are prepared to pay it or, or, or change the value that it's listed at. Right, because in media, I saw I see these pictures at the moment where they're trying to sell 
like 10,000 impressions worth $80,000, but it'll be discounted however much percent down to $10,000. It's like that's just bullshit. And if someone's buying it, looking at it like that through that lens and they're buying it thinking they're getting a good deal, then they're actually an idiot. Yeah, it's- I, I, I absolutely agree with you and I think it's classic too, the Black Fridays and all of these things that just actually kill your supply chains. They they make so much disruption to everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, only need to sell twice a year. But, you know, or would you just prefer this much more consistent line that just grows over time that's much more predictable, much more scalable? Um, and yeah. I, like, I, I flat out agree with you on that. Totally. And so, like, the just pricing, price management is one thing that um, mm. I see is a really interesting trend across every channel. Um, having a really strategic approach to what you're selling, like how you're selling it, when you're selling it, what the, like the product offering. There's so many more things that you could focus on other than just dropping your price. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd, I would love to see... Sellers doing more of that and buyers looking for more of that, looking for yeah. value adds, you know, as opposed to yeah. just discounts. Yeah. So as you've progressed through, obviously, career, you've, um, you know, you've had a few roles and things have escalated. So tell yeah. us, you know, now without going into the detail of what your product does or anything like that, but what was the main problem that you saw in the marketplace that um, you thought that you could have a crack at? And yeah, right. you know, what's, that, what's that problem look like? So. Just to frame it up, Brand Crush, uh, which is a company now that I've co-founded, um, it basically allows brands to connect with consumers through a network of influential businesses. And so, what we saw in, in what what I saw um, coming off the back of a, an influencer uh, platform and working mm-hmm. in an influencer business was that the fragmentation in uh, endorsement um, through micro influencers was definitely a trend that was growing, yep. grabbing traction, um, being desired and admired by brands. And I, I basically applied that online social uh, ambassador or social influencer approach to businesses. You know, if you think about the, the trust that you have with your local butcher or with the person that looks after your kids at daycare or with your yoga instructor or personal trainer, um, even the trust that you might have with the community manager in your co-working space or, or your, um, your concierge in your office foyer, those real-world people are unbelievably powerful endorsement tools um, for brands to leverage uh, where people work, live and play. And mm. so for me, we recognised that there was this massive movement towards digital, like to, to buy a click on Google at the moment averages out, you know, a dollar fifty. To buy a, a click on Facebook uh, globally across all channels at the moment averages out at about a dollar twenty-three. And you know, what we recognise is that we could help brands reach consumers in the real world for a lot less than that in a way more in, um, engaging way that was authentic, genuine, mm. uh, and also scalable. Mm. It makes sense. And what, so with that problem, like, um, so at the end of the day, you're looking at through your career too, you've gone from selling a product that didn't, no one knew about to them working with someone that had a bunch of lists that you sold to or sold lists of 
mm-hmm. to then sell banner ads or ads online mm-hmm. to then sell platforms and marketplaces. And now you're going, let's remove the technologies. It's at the end of the day, it's how do you get the biggest bang for your buck to the right person? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it, it was basically about creating authentic, genuine touch points for brands to reach consumers. Um, yeah. But I, I would say over that that the the evolution of technology has allowed that to um, yeah, to, to come about because without yeah. technology, there's no way you could scale that. So our platform now allows you know a brand to um, book a campaign with a hundred gyms around Australia or a thousand gyms around Australia and America, and they can do a campaign. They can push out one single brand message through all of the um, you know the individuals that work within that gym. They can pay out to all those gyms if there's a remuneration, you know, as part of the campaign or the collaboration. They can manage all of the logistics around, you know, getting mm. product or, or brand material there. And doing all that to all those thousand locations wouldn't be possible without tech. No, no, so no. Of, of, of course. Um, it makes total sense. So you've identified the problem and it seems to be a problem and it's, you know, now a problem. What are you starting to see, like, brands now? I know that. You work with bigger brands, but you know, as you're starting to, you know, with yeah. what's going on in the current environment, localized brands are going to start building again. People yeah. are going to look at that footprint of traffic and you know yeah. how far food comes and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Like, what are the problems that you're starting to see now in the current marketplace because it has been so stressed? And how, mm. um, you know, whether you guys have pivoted, um, you don't need to go into the detail of that. But what what's the problem starting to see and what yeah. you're seeing out of the back of this? Yeah, I think, I mean, definitely we're right in the middle of COVID-19 and, and that's definitely been a challenging time for a business that connects brands with people in the real world. And so <laughs> yeah. to do that, you need people in the real world. Um, yeah. We've been lucky that we have partners on our platform that do you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, food delivery boxes every month to consumers' homes. And so you can, you can in, insert so um, brand, brand samples or messages into those boxes um, and then that's a really interesting time to reach families you, you know we work with um, partners on our platform who um, deliver the the food like takeaway food to people's homes for for Deliveroo and for Uber Eats and for Menulog and so again you you know for brands out there that want to reach consumers when they're right in that moment about to, to eat something or whatever that's that's a, a really interesting proposition um, with with added inventory to our platform that basically allows brands to reach residential towers through concierges in residential towers and get messages to people um, direct to home. Yeah. So, so those are all... So, so plowing into it though, like what's the problem that you're saying? Yeah. Is so, it that, you know, because obviously digital now is, you know, all of these businesses that haven't gone digital are now gone, oh, we've got to go digital. So yeah. the networks are absolutely flooded. Like what's the core problems you're starting to see that you're so starting here's, to cover? Here's our play. This is, this is where we see it going. What we've realised in the last 18 months, two years of building Brand Crush and building a network of everyday businesses is that, you know, putting COVID aside for a second, those businesses have amazing reach. They are their own media solution, right? The, the mm. customers that come through their physical doors every day or the customers, even the customers that they email or the customers that they message and amplify to or across their social channels are all a media solution. So what, mm. 
we are trying to become and, and the problem we are trying to solve is to um, democratise the world's media, right? Mm. And so what we're saying is that every business that has any physical, digital or social reach on the planet can now monetize that with our platform. Mm. And we think that that's a game changer because these are the guys that are paying rent. These are mm. the guys that, um, you know, yeah. have to outlay a ton, of, a ton of dollars a lot of time on stock or they're, you know, they're paying um, massive costs to be able to facilitate that foot traffic. And so now we're saying you can monetize that. And so whether that's an event company running events or whether that's a shopping center that has thousands, you know, 20,000 consumers coming through their shopping center every day, or even if it's a massive grocery uh, supermarket, um, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of that sort of selling uh, offline in PDF packs at the moment. We're mm-hmm. going to systemize the whole process, obviously leveraging technology. And mm. as part of that, we aim to dem- democratize the world's media. Mm. I like it. And tell us a little bit about, you know, the theme of this whole podcast is talking to people that are, that are, you know, we're in a really interesting space at the minute with COVID that's going on. You know, the world's globalised, but we're going to start shrinking. It's going to change. The world's changing again and people are starting to be a bit more conscious, I think, of what they're consuming, where they're consuming and all that sort of stuff. What is, you know, what's Brand Crush doing? What are you guys doing as a business to try and help enable this to happen? Um, is it something that you are doing or tell us a little bit about what the, you know, the values behind your business are to, to help make the, better, the world a better place and also make businesses better as well? It's a tough one and there's always a fine line when you're, when, you're, yeah. when you're a startup, you're scrapping for every dollar you earn and you're conscious of every dollar that you spend. Um, it, it's, it's like a very fine line between having this, this epic... Um, carefree place to work where no one is a number or sorry everyone's just a number or whatever in our environment um everyone is like crucial and and um you know has a massive impact in the business every person in our business um is you know unbelievably accountable for set outcomes and so we have this balancing act between driving core outcomes that the business mm-hmm. needs to achieve its milestones and those milestones might be related to um, getting to a revenue level where we need to raise some more money to grow faster or it might be you know milestones of um, of transaction volume to show the health of our marketplace or it could be milestones mm-hmm. around um, you know the type of businesses that we onboard what yeah. what we do as a business is really try and empower our team with, um, you know, the freedom to go away and do their jobs, uh, and we we trust that they we we already trust that they're doing it to the best of their ability. We trust that they are out there hustling um, mm. as hard as they possibly can, and we try and as a leadership team basically just take away any barriers to them being successful. Um, and and then from a cultural perspective, there's there is a lot of flexibility around, especially at the moment. You know, when people are homeschooling, um, when people are potentially being stood down, like we've had to stand down a couple of people, or, or in between uh, when COVID first hit and JobKeeper, you know, mm. we stood people down. We stood people down and then still had them showing up to our our daily calls, and and they just wanted to show up to to be involved in the company and. You know, those people that give and give and give like that 
are the first ones that we hire or put back on as soon as we could uh, mm. it, as well. So it goes two ways. But um, from our perspective, um, you know, trying to build a culture as a young startup, it, it's hard because like there's got to be this reality around um, everyone just going out and working hard to do their job. But then there's like an old school mentality that if people aren't in the office, um, are they really working or are they, are we, are we getting the where, most out of them? Where does, where does that subculture come from? The, you know, that you have to see people to see that they're working. Uh, I think that, that, you know, my, is that from investors or is that like, you know, that they, they feel like if you're not, you know, because that is what I would call a, a brawl, a bullshit rule these days. Yeah. Um, I think that that's probably been blown out of the water during especially COVID. Especially now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're, we've proven that we can, we can still survive and thrive working totally remotely, staying connected virtually. Um, but I guess there's, there's that question, you know, that you know you always ask when you're paying payroll is if are we getting the most bang for our buck with that with that role and um there's a ton of it you know distractions at home um yeah whether it's everything from putting the washing out to looking after the cat or whatever like um so i I don't know and to me i probably lean a lot more towards the work from home thinking um, my business partner probably leans uh, a little bit more towards the office environment, not because she wouldn't trust people then that, mm. that they're working hard, but more so that we can try and build a stronger culture and bring people together and yeah. collaborate more, have better communication. So there are pros and cons for both both sides of it. Um, you know, time will tell which which is the best. Uh, what what has you know with this environment? What's two things like one that you've you've learnt that you didn't know was going to happen from from your team and how in what you've adjusted that you didn't really think was going to happen, mm-hmm. and then what's one thing that you're just like, wow, that is just a, a bit of a shock to your system that you weren't expecting. Um, yeah. So look, we coming into into COVID-19, we were setting up for another capital raise. And, and as a tech startup, you know, you're, the capital investment that comes into the business is your lifeline. That's what allows you to keep growing the team, to speed things up and um, to keep building the tech. And when you're planning for a raise, you're, 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 t- you're typically getting to the end, towards the end of your runway, right? Mm-hmm. So that's when you're like you're in a box, it's filling with water and you're getting to the top and you're gasping for air. So it's like it's scary, right? Because you don't want to get to the point where that water goes above your head and, and you haven't um, created more room in the box to get more air. That's hmm. game, it's game over. So we're in a time where, you know, we're growing um, unbelievably quickly month on month and then COVID hit and we took an absolute hit uh, you know, to our revenue, and we've been blown away by the support that our early stage investors have given us. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been not just supportive, but also um, mentoring us to think and look at what the next two years, three years looks like. Um, and there's a dramatic shift in the startup world. You know, going from a state of growth to a state of profitability and that's been a massive shift because 
for the last five years of my life, it's it, in in tech startup land. It's been all about growth, like profit. What's that? Like, I haven't heard about profit for five years. Mm. All of a sudden, um, I'm working in a business that is now very focused on getting to a break even and a cash neutral point where we can survive for um, an indefinite period of time without more investment. And if yeah. we ever take investment on again, it'll be to grow, speed up growth, not to yeah. survive. Yeah. And so that, yeah. That's, it is awesome to hear because um, reality is it's funny money too and it, you, you can't breathe. <laughs> like if you yeah. want to ever breathe properly, you've got to survive yourselves. Um, yeah. And it probably goes, goes right back to your point of when you started working at Subway, you had a bit of freedom. Um, totally. Totally. It, until, to be honest, until this business gets to a point of um, cash neutral or profitability anyway, mm. it doesn't feel like a real business. It's, it's like the word startup to me kind of shits me because it's like, oh, yeah, startup, what's that code for? That's code for a business that's losing money. And, <laughs> yeah. and I don't want to be that. I don't want our business to yeah, be well, that. You're two, you're, two years, you're two years old now. Like you're not a startup. <laughs> Yeah, it so, is a buzz. It's a buzzword, and I think it's done now too. So slowing down some of the growth, but changing our our structure. And so we've we've had really amazing advisors and mentors and investors, mm. um, you know, force us to really focus on what are the revenue drivers and levers within the business that we need to focus on. Um, and we have done a, a massive remodeling of how we're going to focus uh, our sales strategy and our product strategy to um, basically just. 10x that um, that mm. path to profitability, and so mm. literally, that's that's this whole COVID thing has basically given us an unbelievably rewarding shakeup because we could have kept going along with a with an okay yeah. business model, growing top line revenue quickly, but yeah. sometimes top line revenue in a marketplace where you, you could only be earning a very small percentage of margin is a lot of work to, to not get much bang for buck. And so yeah. you know, there's no secrets in saying that we're pivoting towards selling our software. And when you're selling software, there's way more margin. It's way more scalable in terms of mm. you can, like the, the cost to acquire a customer actually stacks up um, because you, you could spend 500 bucks, get a customer, but you know that they're going to spend $5,000 in the first year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or depending on what they are. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to this week it's come up because Australia, we've been quite, you know, sheltered in reality. We missed 2008. Like we didn't really hit that, you know, global recession in, in you know, when you look at it. Um, yeah. I think it's 29 years straight we've had positive growth. Yeah. Um, so I, I read an article this week which talks about that reality is in every 10 years, there's two years that are going to be pretty average and one shocker. Um, and you need to plan for that, um, and no one does. Um, you know, they generally plan for growth, but don't plan for the bad, bad mm. time. Um, yeah. So it's just really interesting article, and it's an interesting thing to think about in this current climate. <laughs> what baffles me is not just little businesses that don't have money put aside to survive, but no, there's big, big businesses <laughs> out there that can't survive a month without revenue. No. Yeah, and that's. That's scary. That should be built into their dividend model. That should be built into, um, you know, that cash reserves is yeah. like rainy day money. I don't know. I've only ever thought about it personally, but it's something every business should be should be looking at. I, I, I heard yesterday that one of the most iconic sort of cafe restaurant bars 
in Sydney, you know, the bucket list is go- has gone under through this. That that yeah. is a business that like is iconic. Um, and, and just obviously, you know, challenging time, but but tough um, cash management. So, yeah, um, yeah the the modelling the modelling has forced us to change. We're expect like in this market, if you're a startup, don't expect to raise cash until like 2021, no. 22 at yeah. least, um, because everything is drying up, and um, you need to be doing your modelling. Yeah. Oh, and and like reality is where the businesses that um, we're we're talking about this more sustainable growth too. So, you know, if you want to be, and we've talked about this previously on a couple of the podcasts of you know the custodian custodian to your business, Mm -hmm. you actually leave it in a better place. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't actually. It's like your farm or a property. You don't own it. You're the custodian yeah. of it. You come in and you should make it better. And when you leave it, the business yeah, should be stuck totally. in a better place. Totally. Um, and those ones that you've just talked about, like reality is whoever was running those big enterprise businesses has not set them up for the future. Yeah. Um, and we're not like this is only the, probably the start of, well, you know, we had fires at the start of the year. That's, that's going to happen again. Yeah. Um, like everything in the world's speeding up. So if we don't slow down, it's just mm-hmm. going to keep happening. So you mm-hmm. need to plan for it. So totally. I think, you know, it's a fascinating lesson to go through with what you've had to in the last couple of months, but a lot yeah. of people have. But at the stage your business is at too, it's just it's amplified it so much. So I can imagine how yeah. stressful it's tough, but probably rewarding. And, and now I look back, you know, I think Steve Jobs said you can always – Never makes sense to set things until you look back and connect the dots. And then when you look back, that's when it makes sense. And I look at personal life and, and business life and it makes it's so clear now. To get that yeah. lesson now um, is actually something that I'm grateful for. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. So if you were to give a tip to like someone that is owning revenue for a business, not the owner, um, you know, your background, you've sold into people that have, probably run revenue for a long time what would your you know tip be at the minute and not even at the minute like the theme of the last few years you've had um to that person how is it really going to help them in this really over noisy complicated (laughs) challenging environment what would it look like i mean there's so many ways you can tackle this question everything from how they look at the product positioning to how they segment their customer base um, how often they're talking to their customer base. Um, from let me think about that. So, from my perspective, if someone's if someone's in charge of driving um, revenue for their business, I'd probably I'd probably look at their current revenue pot and then create some personas about who's bringing in the revenue in that pot. And so let's say you end up with four personas. Um, I would look at out of those personas, which one has the most margin in it mm-hmm. and, then, and then align your resource investment with that persona, whether that's more salespeople selling for that, that particular customer or whether that's more marketing towards that particular customer or whether that's building more, cust- more products that that customer could potentially buy. Um, mm. or, or even looking at um, what else you can do across those other customer personas to get them um, behaving more like the one that's the most margin. 
Um, so it's a really tough question to answer generally, but but looking at your customer base from a persona level is probably where I would start, and and that persona starts from behavioural traits, um, pain points, and then also um, price points that they are prepared to pay for your yeah, product or service. Don't, don't hang out with the discounters that just want it for the cheapest price, huh? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So, Maddie, you're two years into Brand Crush, um, and it's been a journey. Um, what has that journey to the vision looked like, and how sort of far into it compared to what you thought you would be? I. So two years ago, I said to my partner, "We'll only do this for two years." <laughs> <laughs> I get reminded of that uh, pretty much every day. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> the vision is always unbelievably optimistic and rose-coloured yeah. and, um, you know, the, the real warts and all um, outcomes is is probably a lot more exciting and a lot more rewarding than what the original optimistic yeah. vision is. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, raising cash, and, and I know this this talk's not necessarily about that, but that's that's a process that I actually wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. <laughs> Raising cash is is so hard um, because you know you just want to build your dream. You think you're going to solve a problem with what you've built or what you're building, mm. and and then the raising the cash is like it's like sucking air out of that. Um, if you push through, obviously you find people that believe in that vision as well, and they they support the vision, and and, and then they're on the journey together. And in an ideal world, um, it comes to fruition, and and then you know some other bigger fish wants to buy that and everyone's a winner and including the supporters but um for me what i've probably realized is that the initial vision was mainly about the outcome mm-hmm. um and the what i thought would be the end of the road the exit mm-hmm. or, or whatever mm-hmm. um and what i realize now is that um it's probably more about the journey and if it mm. takes 2 years cool if it takes 5 years well, do you know what? That's probably not a bad thing either because every day we're learning. Um, we've got an mm. awesome team that we're building and, and the human yeah. connections, with, which is powerful. And when yeah. we get to a point of profitability, I don't care if I'm working in this business um, for 50 years. Yeah. Um, so, so I think yeah, it's that, probably, that, that flipping yeah. that mindset too, it does, you start to flip into abundance and then it becomes you yeah. know, really exciting and it's like, well, yeah. I don't need to get rid of it now. Um, exactly. And we're, we're talking, uh, this conversation has come up a couple of times this week around yeah. you think of athletes at the minute where there's no date now, there's no Olympics, there's yeah. no football, there's no, so it's it's actually all about the process now. It's about your behaviours, it's about your re- resilience, it's about your discipline, it's about doing totally. all of that totally. shit that you don't want to do. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's no different in business yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. You, you've definitely nailed it. When you're thinking and focused on an exit or an outcome, it's a scarcity mindset. And when you're focused on the journey, um, it's it's very much that abundance mindset. And yeah, um, I, I would say it's something that I'm working towards. And the closer we get to profitability, <laughs> the closer I'll be to that abundance mindset. And yeah. it, purely because until you're at that point as a business, you are at the mercy of investment and that mm-hmm. that that's tough 
it's a really tough no. process to go through. Totally, oh, it's exciting. It's good to hear that it's um you know that it's moving and you've pivoted and it's you know it's going well and you're excited about it, which is awesome. Yeah. So, tell us your in the last couple of years, Maddie. What's your most you know, your biggest success story or your most proudest moment that um you know as a, as a business owner? What would that be? Um, uh, proudest moment in the last couple of years. It wouldn't be a business. Um, I've got a little, <laughs> got a little three-year-old boy who's running around, and yeah. and um, and you know, my partner and I are just unbelievably proud parents. And and that that topples anything in business for anyone out there who is, you know, I, I watched a podcast. Um, Watch one, listen. <laughs> sorry, I listened to a podcast the other night, and it was talking about the mindset of super successful entrepreneurs and the mindset um you know basically determining what those entrepreneurs focus on and and what they um either outsource or or cut out of their life and Mm. you know i was talking about your daily activities it could be ten dollar an hour roles like doing the washing or cleaning the car all that sort of stuff this talked about the um the super entrepreneurs outsourcing that and paying someone else to do it then it talked about them basically reducing their family time down to minimal or, or nothing, right? And that's because it, it leaves them so much headspace that they can focus so much more on the business and maybe mm. their health and their personal development. And mm. I thought about that. I'm like, like, I get that for someone who hasn't had kids yet. And you might think like that. And I've definitely written goals in the past. And my goals mm. said that I actually in my goals when I was younger, I put a percentage of how much I was going to be focused on family versus business Mm. and it was something like up to 42 the age of 42 you know i'm going to be 70 percent focused on business and then after 42 it'll start to ratchet back towards family all that is out the window um Mm. now and i'm not saying that i'm the best dad because i'm definitely very you know all the best partner i'm very work focused it's a a journey (laughs) but doing it together doing that as a team, um, that's something that I now work a lot more towards and that's something I'm, I'm trying to get better at. Getting that family unit on the bus and focused together is probably the most rewarding thing that, mm. and the most exciting thing that I could do that is positively impacting my business life. Mm. Um, and, and in terms of what I'm most proud of outside of that, um, it would be proving an idea, like so bringing this concept that, Every every business could be their own media, you know, whether that's gyms, cafes, yoga studios, Pilates studios, and 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 building a platform that brands actually use to collaborate with those at scale. That had never been done before, um, and now you know we've got campaigns happening all over Australia and America, um, mm. using that concept and executing to create great brand engaging brand touch points, and so that. That's super exciting as a creator because you, mm. you have a vision and um, and to see it come to fruition is immensely rewarding. Yeah, that's awesome. So to give us an update where you're at, Maddie, how big is the team? How many customers do you have globally? Um, so we can report back on this in a couple of years to see where we're at. Yeah, cool. Good question. So the team um, here in Australia is around about nine. Uh, we have some, um, you know, some devs and stuff that are all over the world, and, and we've got mm-hmm. about four staff across the US that 
work on a contracting base. But let's say, let's say there's 20 people involved in bringing uh, Brand Crush to life around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got uh, about 850 um, businesses that have listed their inventory on our platform. So there's a, about 3,500 media listings across our our platform um and you know and then there's about 400 brands that use our platform as a as a marketplace so so let's mm-hmm. say there's a there's about 1200 clients and 20 staff and um and we're across two countries and i'd love to come back and talk about where we're, where we are uh, you mm-hmm. know in a couple of years time and i think it'd be a good story yeah it's very exciting and it's all just getting started i love it Early days, lots of exciting things to come, that's for sure. Uh, awesome, Matty. So I just wanted to um, really thank you for coming on. It's been interesting to just hear how your career and some of those early things have built you into the business person you are and how sometimes, you know, we all do it. We don't think of those things in those early days that actually shapes who you become. Totally. Um, and also don't forget them because they are the most powerful things. Um, so there was some absolute gold in there. So um Maddie, really appreciate you coming on. I hope you uh, enjoyed it and I'm sure we'll be in touch some stage soon for another one. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.